0: Section 4 of Malaria, A Neglected Factor in the History of Greece and Rome by William Henry Samuel Jones, Ronald Ross et al. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings in the public domain. For more information on the volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 4. Conclusion by J. G. G. Eliot, M.B. The decline and ultimate downfall of a great nation form a theme at once so tragic and full of interest that it must not be lightly passed by. Down through the history of the world, nations have risen and fallen. Empires have grown and attained such extent of territory and power that it has seemed that they must be unassailable. But then has come the fall. Not always suddenly and swiftly, but as if it were by the agency of some slow disease undermining the whole vital and moral power of the nation. Broadly speaking, it may be said that a nation's prosperity is measured by the social and commercial morality of her citizens, and no nation can long continue to prosper economically whose standard of morality is declining. Between the years five hundred b c and three hundred b c there had come over Greece a great change, which has as yet been insufficiently explained. There is no doubt that between these years the whole moral tenor of Greece, and more especially of Athens, degenerated. This had been raised to a very high pitch of excellence. Art and philosophy both reached a standard which the world, though it may have equalled, has never surpassed. In the year 450 BC, the citizens of the various city-states of Greece were manly, patriotic and religious. They were brought up to, and was their pride to maintain, that ideal of citizenship, which demanded of every individual that he should willingly perform his allotted part in upholding the honour of the state whether as magistrate or a soldier, or in some less conspicuous capacity. After that year, a change set in. This change was not indicated by an in immorality, but the virtues of courage and patriotism, which had, up to then, dominated in the Greek character, gave way to a sentimentalism, a kindness and domesticity, which eventually proved disastrous. For though it may appear that these characteristics are not such as to encompass the downfall of a nation nowadays. It must be remembered that at the time when the Greek states were declining, the small and weakly nation was not protected from the strong and powerful neighbour by any consideration of international self-respect on the part of the latter. Nay, rather was a nation's self-respect, and that in which she was held by her neighbours, in direct proportion to her strength and her preparedness to repel the attacks of those neighbours. There must have been, then, some agent which in the fourth century b c was at work on the character of the Greeks, causing them to give up their belief in religion, in a future life, and the value of patriotism. For these changes undoubtedly occurred, and were as undoubtedly largely instrumental in bringing about the decline of the Greek nation. The day is long past when such changes could be accepted as the inevitable and inscrutable workings of providence, into which even it would not only be useless but even wicked and dangerous to probe. What then was that agent? The Greek writers, medical and non-medical, make frequent mention of fevers, and perhaps there is no word which is being used so indiscriminately or with such indefinite and varied meaning as the word fever. Even today, in England, the term is employed with the utmost looseness as applied to nearly every disease contracted beyond the bounds of our sea isle. In the foregoing pages, The various words used by the Greek authors to indicate fever have been critically examined and compared. And it has been noted that the word paretos was from the year 400 BC, somewhat restricted in its sense, and applied to all events by some authors, chiefly to those fevers which were distinguished by a periodicity of access. Now there exists very little doubt that by far the most common of that category of diseases which is designated by the word fever is malaria. This disease, which has within the last two decades been so thoroughly investigated, has an enormous area of distribution. That it is endemic in many parts of Greece is well known. Hirsch says, As regards Greece, We are assured of the endemic occurrence of malarial disease at many points in Boeotia and Attica, Nevada, Locris, the swampy shores of Lake Topias, Thebes, the Country Road, Athens, Saitouni, Nopentos and Vonditsa, Acharnania and Aetolia, Acellus in Euboea, in the Peloponnese at Corinth and Nabod, Vostiza, the ancient Aegean, Trapulca, Mistra, Navarino, Modon, and many other places on the coast. In Crete, endemic malaria is very common, as it is also in several of the Ionian islands, particularly Cephalonia, Santorini, and Corfu, and quite recently the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine has been carrying out an inquiry into the disease in Greece, and a league has been founded to combat it. It seems then that while the Greeks, like all other nations, were attacked by sharp epidemics of a deadly nature, such as the plague of Athens, there were known to them, and were described by their medical writers, other diseases of a less fatal nature, which were more or less constantly present. And which were designated fevers. And moreover, among these fevers were recognized some types having a marked and regular periodicity of attack. There is a distinct difference noted between the plague and the fevers. Galen, in his commentary on Hippocrates, explains the plague as an epidemical fever of a fatal nature. Thucydides, in his description of the plague of Athens, mentions that the disease was very acute, with much vomiting of bile and towards the end, diarrhoea, ulceration of the bowels, and various symptoms of putrefaction. The transient character of the plague was well known, as Advent was believed to be connected with the appearance of extraordinary phenomena in Earth and Sky. From Thucydides downwards, most Greek writers, medical and non-medical, who make mention of the plague, draw attention to this contagiousness. While Alexander Afrodyssin goes so far as to say that pestilential fevers are contagious, but common fevers not so. There is no doubt then, that the Greeks were perfectly able to discriminate between the plague, which seems, from the symptoms mentioned to have been some type of intestinal disease, and the intermittent fevers, which were more commonly present and less fatal, and which were looked upon with a degree of toleration, to which perhaps a parallel may be found in the way in which some 2,000 years after, an epidemic of influenza is regarded in the present day compared with an epidemic of typhoid fever or of smallpox. Now in the foregoing pages, reference has been made to various passages from the greek medical writers and not a few from the non-medical authors to show that the greeks were well acquainted with intermittent fevers which they called quartans and tertians and the references given above to Galen's works, Peri and Peri prove almost beyond a doubt that Galen, as also his predecessor, from whom he quoted largely, had acquired a knowledge of the various types of intermittent fevers, such as could only be gained from an extensive acquaintance with this type of disease. And Galen, be it remembered, besides being skilled in all the sciences of his day, was a most accomplished clinican. He, like his prototype and model, the great master of medicine, Hippocrates, belonged to the rational sect, who looked upon disease and its treatment from the broadest point of view, and availed themselves of the knowledge to be gained from a close study of the causes of disease. It seems, therefore, legitimate to conclude that the intermittent fevers, the Quotidians, tertians, and quartans, were a frequent occurrence among the ancient Greeks, and this view is rendered more probable by the following facts. Splenic enlargement is frequently mentioned by hypocrites and other medical writers, and a syndrome of symptoms is mentioned as being very commonly met with, which bears an undoubted resemblance to the symptoms of malarial cachexia. And this splenic enlargement, which was of common occurrence, is greatly in favour of a prevalence of malaria in Greece, both before and during the time when hypocrites lived and wrote. For although the spleen becomes enlarged through other causes, and notably during an attack of typhoid fever, It is to be remembered that the typhoidal spleen usually resumes its normal size on the subsidence of the fever. Whereas the malarial spleen most frequently remains enlarged for years, this is due, no doubt, to the length of time that the malarial parasite remains domiciled in its human host. It is possible, too, that the frequency with which the votive offerings of the Greeks after illness took the form of a representation of the abdomen is due to the splenic enlargement. It may be so, and undoubtedly the malarial spleen, which not infrequently reaches the weight of 70 or 80 ounces, a normal spleen weighs 5 to 7 ounces, would be very noticeable, and the consequent enlargement of the abdomen would most certainly make a great impression on the non-medical mind. Now, there is very little doubt that Greece does, at the present time, afford excellent soil for the growth of the malarial mosquito, and this is largely due to the configuration of the country, as is known, Greece is a very mountainous country, but between the mountains are numerous small valleys with abundance of stagnant water during certain parts of the year. One of these valleys, that of Lake Copais, has been visited and examined by Major Ross, who has found malaria very prevalent and of a very severe type, especially among the children. Infecting the child one or two years after birth, it persecutes him until puberty with a long succession of febrile attacks. Accompanied by much splenomegaly and anaemia. In these words does Major Ross talk of the scourge which at present undermines the whole of the life of Greece, and he asks what must be the effect of this ubiquitous and everlasting incubus of disease on the people of modern Greece. What indeed, for it would seem that this disease, with its constant drain upon the resources of the growing body, must put a check upon the development physical and mental of each successive rising generation. Viewed from an entirely medical standpoint, the question can admit of no doubt. The succession of febrile attacks would alone be a serious tax upon the growing child, or the consequent anemia which so soon makes its appearance, at a time of great educational importance, must make the child incapable of prolonged application, and rob him to a large extent of his powers of mental receptivity. It is only too evident that in a few generations, a type of man possessing extraordinary mental and physical powers may become under this scourge malaria, greatly altered and debased. If it be that the malarial parasite was introduced into Greece during the 5th century BC, it is quite possible for the disease, running a practically unchecked course, to have produced the profound deterioration which occurred in the Greek character during the next century and a half. Mention has already been made of the enlarged spleen and the anemia, which are so often the results of repeated malarial attacks. The anaemia is frequently very extreme. The red blood cells being been reduced to one quarter of their normal number. In addition to this, there may be quickened respiratory movements. The heart's action may be weak and the pulse weak, while such may be the general condition of the tissues that the slightest wound may become gangrenous. Dropsy, diarrhoea, vomiting, loss of appetite, and all kinds of neuralgic and muscular pains are some of the troubles to which the subjects of chronic malaria are liable. They are too more susceptible to any other infections with which they come in contact. It appears from a study of the foregoing pages highly probable that malaria was introduced into Greece during the 5th century BC. It is well known that malaria, when introduced into a new region, which it finds suitable to its growth, will make very rapid and very serious ravages among the inhabitants of that region especially in the absence of prophylaxis. But prophylaxis, as is known today, was not practiced in the 5th century BC, and it seems legitimate to conclude that the malaria probably ran a more or less unchecked course among the Greeks. Such a course, in fact, as would be liable to carry in its train all the more serious consequences of the disease which have been recounted above. And a perusal of these consequences will not leave the reader any doubt than at very few generations, such influences must, both by transmitted hereditary diathesis and by direct infection of the children, have very marked and very baneful effects upon the physical and mental powers of a nation. The moral effects of disease are felt in several ways a sharp epidemic with an accompanying high mortality has a very different moral effect upon a people to that produced by a disease which has changed its character from epidemic to endemic. Such a scene, for instance, as was presented in Europe during the 14th century by the Brotherhood of Flagellants, due undoubtedly to the reaction of fear upon the minds of people who were both ignorant and superstitious, was only likely to be caused by a sharp and fatal epidemic, such as was the Black Death in that century. And it must be remembered, In assigning its proper value from a modern standpoint to that, and like episodes, that imagination, which played so prominent a part in the life and thought of the ancients, has to a large extent been destroyed by the flood of materialization in which the superstitions of the past have been buried. But a temporary state of frenzy following on an epidemic of a malignant nature is not likely to cause any permanent degeneration in the physical and mental characteristics of the nation attacked. Besides, be it remembered, the ancient Greeks, though highly imaginative, were not superstitious to the same degree and the same sense as with the people of the Middle Ages. It is a disease which is only slightly fatal, and on that account perhaps somewhat neglected, which will exert its harmful effects upon individuals, and through them insidiously upon the life and energies of the state which is peopled by these individuals. And especially will a disease, which leaves serious after-effects, tend to act thus. For the individual may be weakened by the hereditary transmission of the morbid taint from his parents, or by actual infection after birth. He may suffer from an inherited diathesis, or he may acquire some definite pathological changes in his tissues from direct infection. And this pernicious process, carried on practically unchecked for a generation or two, must tend to produce a type of man very inferior to the original. Is there, then, any example of disease at the present time which, having become practically endemic, causes serious after-effects, though the primary infection itself is but rarely fatal? No one today is unacquainted with the very serious conditions produced by the various sequelae of influenza. Many and strange they are, and they attack nearly every system of the human body, Perhaps the post influenzal state has been best described by Dr. Gowers, quoted by Professor Clifford Allmott. It is an intense feeling of inertia. Every action, physical and mental, requires an effort of the will to initiate and maintain it that is almost painful. Immobility of mind and body alone seems possible, and yet even rest has to be endured, for it brings no freedom from the sense of prostration. So strange and unfamiliar is the state that it seems, at first, as if it would only be transient, and would be gone tomorrow. But the mistake is realised when day after day, week after week, passes without relief. In perhaps the majority, it is only after some months that the natural freedom of untrammeled effort is regained. This is no exaggeration, and to descend to details, influenza is a more prolific producer than any other infection of hypochondriasis mental aberration, melancholia, mania, and general paralysis. Neuralgia, neuritis, and many other degenerations, temporary and permanent, have followed influenza, and many signs of disturbed nerve centers have persisted long after the initial infection has disappeared. Hirsch says that the geographical distribution of influenza extends, without doubt, over the whole inhabited globe, and he questions the endemicity of influenza in certain countries situated in the cold zone. But it is generally agreed that the epidemic of 1889 to 90, as well as former epidemics, had its origin in Russia, whence in a few months it had spread westward across Europe, finally reaching North America and only attacking tropical countries late in its course, when it had exhausted the countries of the cold zone. This disease had been dealt with at some length, because the writer has wished using it as an example, to emphasise the manner in which such a disease, which has almost established for itself the character of intimacy by the serious after-effects which it causes, may in time bring about moral and physical degeneration in the inhabitants of a country, although but few fatal issues are recorded from the disease itself, and it is in consequence of this very fact regarded with considerable toleration. Now, the geographical distribution of endemic malaria may be roughly said to include all tropical and subtropical countries. Covering a broad area on either side of the equator, malaria continues to be endemic, for some distance into the temperate zone, its frequency and severity diminishing towards the higher latitudes. In Europe, England, France and Germany are the countries most exempt from malaria. In Africa, the disease is very widespread and very severe. South Africa, comprising Cape Colony, Orange River Colony, the Transvaal, Natal, and Rhodesia is that part in which the disease is least prevalent. Throughout the continent of Asia, malaria has long been endemic, with the exception of the group of islands formed in Japan. Here the disease is very rare, and when it does occur, it is mild in type. Australia and New Zealand, in fact all Oceania, enjoy a marked immunity from malaria. In the Western Hemisphere, malaria is very severe in the west Indies, east, the east coast of the Gulf of Mexico, and in Brazil. In southern Brazil, however, Uruguay, and some parts of the Argentine Republic, there is a comparative immunity from the disease. The Pacific coasts of Central America and Mexico enjoy a large degree of freedom from malaria than do the coasts facing the Atlantic Ocean. In North America, in general terms, the disease may be said to be endemic in the southern states, decreasing both in frequency and severity, northwards, so that the endemic malaria is practically unknown in Canada. Though, as an epidemic disease, it has on rare occasions made its appearance. Perhaps the most striking fact in the light of hence, which this brief and rough sketch of the topography of endemic malaria brings out is the almost absolute immunity of Japan. There is no place here to discuss the probable reasons for Japan's somewhat sudden leap into the position of a first-rate power. Suffice it that she has assumed that position and shows every prospect of maintaining it, and the most prejudicial observer will be bound to admit that the Japanese have displayed a patriotism and fearlessness such as was displayed by the Greeks at the height of their military and naval glory before the moral decline, which ultimately proved their ruin had as yet set its mark upon them. It may be objected that it is unfair to argue from the cause of one small portion of the globe. But the case of Japan is so very striking, or especially when looked at in contrast with the gigantic but unprogressive neighbour China, where malaria of a very severe type is constantly present. But in the other countries there is no lack of evidence that the districts and countries which enjoy a total or partial immunity from malaria are those whose inhabitants do they exhibit the greatest activity. For has not South America fallen far behind North America? And Spain, which once bid fair to be the mistress of all Europe, nay of all the known world, has fallen from her high estate, and has for long years been unable to keep pace with the more northern countries of Europe. And lastly, what in contrast is there between the malarial and non-malarial parts of Africa, between South Africa and the West and Central Africa? End of section 4 And end of Malaria, a Neglected Factor in the History of Greece and Rome, by William Henry Samuel Jones, Ronald Ross and G.G. Ellett. Recorded by Leon Harvey for LibriVox.org.